I am Pastor Corrine Borov, Senior Pastor at Anderson First United Methodist Church. Thank you for listening to our worship service today. If you want to learn more about this church, visit our website at andersonfirst.org. Have a blessed day and enjoy the message. Our lesson is from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of God for the people of God. Can you believe it? This year has gone by as fast as, well, a zip. It's been a fast year so far. This is our last Sunday here for worship in this sanctuary until Labor Day rolls around, and we begin looking toward fall again. We've had a rather late spring this year, but Memorial Day is just one week away, and I, for one, am looking forward to a change of schedule activity in the summer months ahead. I know that some of you are looking forward to a time of relaxing at the lake. Others have travel plans of a different sort. You're taking a cruise or uh, you're taking a journey in your motorhome. Others of you are a little more uh, adventuresome and you are going to pack up your tent and pitch it wherever the spirit moves. Well, we began. We begin worship service um, differently again next Sunday. Uh, we begin an hour earlier at Davis Park, worshiping God in a different kind of sanctuary, sanctuary of trees and breeze and a grass carpet under our feet. And for those of you who come a little later to the north-south parlor, there is a little more intimate feel to our worship setting, perhaps. It's quieter, a little more reflective. But wherever we are, in this sanctuary, Davis Park, or in the North-South Parlor, worship takes place. Through our words and our songs, our prayers and our giving, we honor God. We show reverence to the one who knew us before we were conceived and who breathed into us the breath of life. We express our devotion to the one who sets us free and shows us the way. And through our worship, we declare our intention to put God first in our lives. At least, that is what this time was prepared for us to do in community with one another. This morning, I want us to think together about worship. Not the noun worship which names what we do together in this one hour every Sunday or what you do in your own solitary time with God. Rather, I want to focus on the recipient of our worship 
and the unmistakable command of Scripture regarding worship. That first commandment given to God's people is clear. Our worship, our reverence, our devotion belongs to God alone. The first shall be first. A number of years ago, Judge Roy Moore of Alabama fought to have the Ten Commandments posted on the wall of his courtroom. Do you remember that controversy that raged as a result? Now, I have nothing against the Ten Commandments. They are a part of God's word for God's people. But I wonder, would the Ten Commandments posted on a courtroom wall really be the Ten Commandments of the God whom Christians worship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Here's why I ask this. It seems to me that we cannot really understand the commandments in isolation from our worship to the one true God. There are a lot of good people out there who do not worship God. They don't steal. They tell the truth as much as we tell the truth. They don't cheat on their spouses. And in so much as they obey an isolated commandment or two, they catch a glimpse of God. But the Ten Commandments are meant for those who know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were given to us to help us learn how to worship God faithfully and to express our worship to God truthfully. They were given to God's people as a way of setting them apart from the cultures around them. They were not given as a way to make civil society function smoothly. You remember the story from Exodus, I'm sure. Moses grew up in Egypt, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, while his, parent, his families, his people, lived in slavery. For 40 years, he lived in the lap of luxury until, in his anger, he killed an Egyptian. With his own life on the line, he took off, fleeing to the land of Midian, where he married and settled down tending the sheep of his father-in-law for another 40 years. Likely, he would have died in this place, except that the Lord, the God who enters into our lives and mixes it up with us, decided to have a conversation with Moses through a burning bush that didn't burn up. And this God sent Moses on a mission to rescue God's people and lead them out of slavery in Egypt. Why? Is it because God hates slavery? Well, that may be true, but that's not the reason Scripture gives in this case. In Exodus 3, verse 18, Moses is to tell Pharaoh, quote, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us now go a three days journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. God demands freedom from Egyptian slavery in order that the Hebrews may go into the wilderness to worship. Pharaoh resists throughout a series of plagues, but finally, having had enough assault on his own divine claim, he lets them go only to make one last attempt to stop 
the Hebrew people, at the Red Sea. Moses and the people escape by the mighty hand of God, and Pharaoh's army is destroyed as the waters flood over the chariots. The Hebrew people travel onward, and God provides them with food and water, and at last they arrive at Mount Sinai, the mountain where the people are to worship God. But what now? How are they to worship? They have been in slavery for 500 years. They haven't done this thing before. No one is old enough to remember the rituals or the words. And so God summons Moses up on the mountain and continues that conversation with him by reminding him of all that God has done for God's people. And then, as recorded in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God brought them out of slavery, not so that they would be out from under Egyptian oppression or that they would be free to choose their own way. God brought them out of slavery in order that they might more fully belong to God that they might worship God completely. How are they to worship? Well, God tells Moses how. By setting forth the Ten Commandments and writing them on tablets of stone. I like the way that godly play puts it for our children. In godly play, the Ten Commandments are called the Ten Best Ways. It seems that God has a very particular notion of worship. God wants a holy people. We worship the true God by living according to God's commandments. The Hebrew people were freed from slavery to Pharaoh so that they could become slaves to God's law. Slaves to the ten best ways. We are freed from slavery of our own making that we might become slaves to Almighty God. When we are obedient, it's called worship. In their little book, The Truth About God, Stanley Harawas and William Willimon used the phrase bending life toward God to refer to our obedience to the commandments as a way of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Rightly understood, living into the truths of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Best Ways, is our way of bending our lives toward God. Over the past decade, it seems, our world has experienced some very strange weather patterns and extremes in weather-related crises, from cyclones and hurricanes to tornadoes and devastating fires. We've had so many disasters around the world, I wouldn't have even remembered the tornado that struck Moore, Oklahoma, about five years ago, except for an interview that I saw on CNN in the days that followed. In the aftermath of that tornado in Oklahoma, news crews from all around the nation converged on that community, gathering story after story of lives miraculously saved, of heroic acts of bravery, of property lost and found. 
One of the things I noticed as I was glued to the newscast was that the people of Moore, Oklahoma, seemed to be a God-honoring people. On the whole, Moore is a fairly conservative Christian community. Over and over, people talked of holding on to one another and praying to God while the storm raged just outside their walls. Over and over, people thanked God for protection. With God's help, we'll rebuild, others said. I noticed it, and obviously the reporters noticed it too. So Wolf Blitzer's interview with a young woman who experienced a harrowing escape with her infant son caught me by surprise. They were standing on a piece of ground where her house once stood. It no longer existed. As a way of wrapping up the interview, Wolf Blitzer said to the young woman, who was almost giddy with relief, as I'm sure you can imagine, Wolf Blitzer said, I, I'm sure you're thanking the Lord. And the wo woman giggled a little and said, well, I'm an atheist. But I'm not upset if anyone else thanks the Lord. I often wonder what it is that brings someone to the point of denying that God exists. Not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus Christ, but any, any God, any higher power, whatever you call God. I do not presume, presume to speak for this young lady that Blitzer interviewed. I do not know her story. Maybe for her it's simply about a lack of scientific proof. But in truth, people, especially in this culture and in this age, want their freedom. And God has a way of making demands on us, giving us commandments, setting up expectations and exacting consequences when we fail to measure up, or at least that's the way it sometimes seems. Who wants to acknowledge a God that takes away our freedom? We don't want anyone telling us what to do, even if it's good for us. We refer to the terrible twos. But as a society, we haven't grown up very much either. We live in a culture where submission to any authority outside our own self is considered too authoritarian and totally unfair. Freedom is what we consider our right to choose our own way, and we will fight to protect that freedom no matter what. And so, it's no wonder that we resist submitting to God who commands us to worship God and God alone. Clarifying this concept of worship, the, the Word of God says in verses 4 and 5 of our text, you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Idols can also be known as slavery. And they come in many disguises. There's a slavery to a master like Pharaoh who says, I'm taking away your straw gatherers. Get your own straw, wherever you can find it, and make as many bricks as you did before. There's a slavery to an economy that says, buy a house bigger than you need and get a lot of stuff to fill it up. There's slavery to 24-7 productivity. The Exodus story is a liberation story in one sense. However, the reality is that the Hebrew people exchanged one master for another. 
a false master for a true one. We are not masterless people, no matter what we might think. We are slaves to a false master or we are slaves to the true master. We were created for worship, it seems. And so we will worship a false master or we will worship the one true God. And belief in God won't cut it. We may not be atheists. We may believe that there is a God out there somewhere, some higher power, some sustainer of the universe. We may even believe in the true God. But belief, a mental assent to the reality of God, is not submission. It does not necessarily evoke worship. James 2:19 says, You believe there is only one God? Good. Even the demons believe this, and it makes them shake with fear. The first commandment is clear. God does not want our belief. God wants all of us, our heart, our soul, our time, our house, and all the stuff that fills it, our family. So, who is this God that demands our worship and who is jealously passionate about the people or the things that we give our attention to? What do we do with this God? I think the Hebrew people asked these same questions when Moses suddenly appeared from the wilderness after 40 years and said, God told me I'm the one to lead you out of the desert to worship God. I think they asked these questions again when they got thirsty and couldn't find water in the wilderness and when they got hungry and missed the onions and the bread that filled their stomachs in Egypt. I think they asked yet again when Moses went up on the mountain and it was gone so long that they became afraid and prevailed upon Aaron to make them a golden calf for protection. And I think they were still asking these questions when they spied out the promised land and decided that its inhabitants were just too big and too threatening to take on in battle. Who is this God that demands our worship and who is jealously passionate about the people or the things that we give our attention to? How will they know that who sent me? Moses asked God when God sent him on his liberation mission. Tell them, I am sent you. I will be who I will be, God tells Moses. Who is this God who commands our worship? This is the God who created who existed before time began, who created everything good and who is perfectly free to enter into the middle of our lives no matter how messy and make everything right again. This is the God who is present but will not be controlled or manipulated. This is the God who transcends the parameters of space and time, who is absolutely unknowable and yet becomes visible to us in Jesus Christ. This is the God whose mercy and compassion, whose steadfast love and kindness are never-ending, even when we don't recognize it or when we fail to understand. This world, as broken as it is, did not get this way because God made it happen or because God is not powerful enough to fix it or because God turns a blind eye to our suffering. We chose 
to worship God's creation over God. And yet, God did not desert us. That, for God, is the one impossible thing. Who is this God who commands our worship? God speaks to us directly and says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We know God by what God has done for us, the change God has made in us, the trouble God has gotten us out of, the battles God has fought for us, and the work that God has accomplished through us. The Hebrew people were groaning in their misery and God heard them and sent Moses and God's own power by God's own power to set them free. They were pursued by the chariots of the Egyptian army and God parted the waters. They were thirsty and God brought forth water from the rock. They were hungry and God provided manna. They were afraid. And though their sin became its own punishment, God did not give up on them. And they eventually received what had been promised, a land to call their own. I do think a word needs to be said about verses 5 and 6 in our text. Take a look in your bulletins. These verses sound more vindictive than loving, don't they? They seem rather like a threat. If you don't worship me above all others, God says, I'm going to make sure that even your fourth generation is punished. You'll only get my love if you worship me exclusively. It seems to me that what we are faced with in these verses is the sobering truth of the consequences of misplaced worship. The negative is set here against the positive. On the one hand, God has given us the means by which we might faithfully worship the one true God. If we fail, we also fail our children. Punishment is a fact of life, and when our, when our lives are lived without God, you could say that sin is its own punishment. On the other hand, these verses remind us that when we cry out to God, when we bend our lives toward God, God does not turn a deaf ear to our cries. God's steadfast love is sure, and God welcomes us home. And worship, indeed, is the heart's true home. Who is this God who commands our worship? God says, know me. Remember what I have done. There's no getting around it. We were created for worship. We will worship something or someone. God says, let it be me. Worship me, bend your life my way, and you will truly live. Amen.